Good morning. It's uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, I don't know if there's like a specific Palm Sunday greeting. You know, like the guys that get to preach on Easter, they get to see, say, Christ is risen, and the congregation gets to respond with, he is risen indeed. But Palm Sunday doesn't get a cool greeting like that, so a little bit bummed about that. Um, which is, it's kind of funny though, because it's, Palm Sunday is a day of, of greeting. Uh, it's the day that we celebrate Jesus being welcomed or greeted into Jerusalem. It's a day when we, we hear a story about a royal procession. And as I was preparing for today, I was thinking about royal processions, and I was kind of wondering, what kind of vehicles do the royalty, these kings and queens, ride in, in their royal processions? So I did a little bit of research, and I found out that the everyday limousine for the Queen of England is a 400-horsepower Bentley. It has armored body and glass with Kevlar-reinforced tires, and there's only two of these cars that were made specifically for the royal family of England. For special occasions, such as the royal wedding or a coronation, they bring out their vintage Rolls-Royce Phantom. For us non-car people, that's just like the super classy looking, really expensive luxury car. It's one of only 16 in the world, and they're made exclusively for kings and queens, or people rich enough to be kings and queens. And when they're feeling a little more traditional, again, special occasions, maybe weddings or coronations, the royal family might bust out the horse-drawn, gold-plated carriage. But it's not just royalty that uses fancy cars as status symbols or for special occasions. It's kind of part of our culture too, isn't it? We think about uh, like prom nights or weddings. Everyone wants to arrive in a cool car or a classy car or some creative way to show up to your, to your wedding or your prom. In Vancouver, we see a lot of people, if you ever drive around there, you see a lot of Ferraris, Lamborghinis, these cool supercars. And you know those people didn't buy those cars for the way they handle in that stop-and-go traffic. <laughs> now, out here in Chilliwack, the status symbol vehicle looks a little different. It's probably a truck lifted so high that you need a ladder to get into. The exhaust pipe big enough you can stick your head in it. It's got the tow mirrors sticking out like this, big old moose antlers. And you know, I've never actually seen one of those trucks using their tow mirrors to pull anything. <laughs> But you see, the kind of car that we drive, actually, the type of transportation that we use says something about us. If you drive a minivan, it's likely you have a lot of children. If you drive an electric car like a Prius, it's very likely that you're, you're eco-conscious. If you're even more eco-conscious, you might take public transit or a bike. Either that or you just don't have your driver's license. If you have a 4x4 like a Jeep or a 4Runner, there's a good chance that you're probably an adventurous, backwoods, outdoorsy kind of person. The point is, the kind of transportation we use, the choice of our transportation, uh, makes a statement about who we are. Certain, it kind of sounds like a little bit of the start of one of those like Facebook quizzes. What does your car say about you? Now, when we leave today, we're all going to go out in the parking lot and start judging each other and <laughs> psychoanalyzing each other based on each other's cars, so let's not get <laughs> too carried away down that road. But seriously, today we're going to be reading about a very odd choice of transportation that says a lot about its writer. Today we're going to be reading the classic Palm Sunday story about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. So let's just open with prayer a minute, and then we'll uh, dig right into our passage. Dear Lord, we uh, thank you for this season, 
the season of Easter, the spring season, season of new life. Uh, we thank you for sending your son uh, so many years ago to enter Jerusalem. And we ask again that you, you send your spirit to enter into this place today and enter into our hearts and our minds and that you would uh, speak your words to us. We, uh, we thank you for all that you've done for us, for, yeah, for giving, giving your life to save us. And uh, just uh, pray that we would um, receive you today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so our passage this morning is Luke 19, 28 to 40. I think it's going to be up on the screen. I hope. So here's how it goes. And when he had said these things, this is Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was dry, drawing near, already on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So this is probably a pretty familiar story to most of us. Many of us probably have childhood memories of making palm branch crafts in Sunday school on Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry are the kind of this big kickoff to Holy Week, this last week that leads up to Easter. It's this big event we know all so well, and yet as I prepared for today, it kind of struck me how odd an event this actually is. It's this big parade, it's this big party, it's a big procession for this average-looking guy from Nazareth who's riding into town on this little donkey. It's this royal processional that doesn't end in a coronation, but it ends in an execution. And the only crown that he receives at the end of it is a crown of thorns. And it's so odd because for most of his ministry, Jesus preferred solitude. When the crowds got too much, he moved on or he got in a boat and distanced himself. When he healed people, he often told them to keep it quiet, don't tell anyone. He lived a very humble life, staying out of the limelight as much as he could, which is hard to do for a guy that could walk on water and heal blindness and multiply food. But he tried. So why is this guy who's been trying to keep a relatively low profile suddenly okay with being paraded right down Main Street? There's something going on here. There's something unique and something way outside of Jesus' normal operating procedure. And that means it's something we need to pay attention to. Now, as you read through the Gospels, you kind of feel the tension build as you read through the book. Try it sometime. You read the Gospels, it's crazy. Most accounts begin with a Christmas story, like a little cute little baby. Okay, that's cool. We like that. And move on to some miracles and teaching, water into wine. Okay. But from there, the miracles and teachings grow in intensity. The teachings become harder, drawing the attention of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. 
the miracles grow bigger and bigger, kind of culminating in this raising of Lazarus from the dead. This ministry of Jesus becomes too notorious to ignore, and the glory of God cannot remain hidden forever. As the gospel accounts approach this climatic day, this triumphal entry, it feels like the dam's going to burst. The conflict with the Pharisees has to come to a head here. The growing crowds and the followers are becoming too big of a force to ignore. And it's at this point that, that the gloves come off. Jesus is done keeping a low profile. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he steps into the ring. He's ready to throw down. And he does throw down, but not exactly in the way that we would expect. And as we reflect on the, our passage today, we see a royal, kingly procession, but an unusual one. We see Jesus enter Jerusalem, revealed for who he truly is, as the king. First, as king of the Jews. Second, as king of creation. And thirdly, as the king of our hearts. So let's begin with the first. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. That's what was written on the sign that the Romans put on the cross. It was kind of meant to be a mockery at the time, but I think it was much more true of a statement than they may have actually realized. To first understand what it means to be king of the Jews, we're going to have to go way back in history, so we're going to have a quick history lesson here this morning. So we've been going in our sermon series through the book of Genesis, and in Genesis we hear these stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, who are literally led by God. God speaks directly to them in visions, or he just tells them where to go and when. It's pretty simple. Then the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, they end up enslaved in Egypt. And God again leads his people out. He uses the leadership of Moses, but he also literally leads them with this pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It's very, very simple. Follow the pillar, the giant pillar. But as the Israelites journey towards their homeland, God starts to appoint priests over the people. And once the people have entered the promised land and settled there, God continues to use his priests, but he also appoints judges to rule over the people. And eventually the people demand that Samuel, the high priest, crown a king over them. And up until this point, God has been king of Israel. So Samuel, the high priest, is understandably upset about this, so he prays to God. Well, first he warns the people. He warns them that a king will charge them taxes, that this king will take their kids and will force them to be servants or force them to be soldiers in his army. And despite this, despite these warnings, the people still want a king. They want an actual king that they can see. So Samuel prays to God, and God tells him, go ahead, to go ahead and appoint a king for the people. Then God says this to Samuel. He says, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel, directed by God, appoints this guy named Saul to be the first king of Israel, first king of the Jews, you could say. They didn't call him that back then, but... After Saul comes David, the kind of the famous King David that we hear about a lot. God promises David that the kingship will belong to his descendants forever. Now, forever is a long time. Now, after David, many generations of kings come and go, and their records can be found in these books that are aptly named First and Second Kings. Now, Israel had a lot of really bad kings, if you read about it, with only a smattering of good ones. So finally, after a long string of bad kings, God has had enough of Israel and their wayward kings, and he allows them to be taken captive into Babylon for 77 years. And it's this period of time we call the exile. It was around this time of the exile that a lot of prophets kind of sprung up. 
and they wrote books with all these prophetic books in the Old Testament, and they all kind of center around the exile. In fact, they center around the exile so much that we categorize Old Testament prophecy into pre-exile, during the exile, and after the exile. It's in these books of prophecies that we start to hear these promises of a new king of Israel, a Messiah, an anointed one, someone who's going to come and save Israel from their enemies and restore things back to the way they should be. Now, we could spend all day going through the Old Testament looking at these prophecies one by one, but there's just one today that I want us to notice in particular. It comes in the book of Zechariah, who was a prophet after the exile. Zechariah chapter 9 describes the Messiah king like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule... His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So, if we're looking for this king that's going to come riding on a donkey who does away with war and brings peace. You see where I'm going with this. So several hundred years go by after this prophecy is made and there's no sign of this donkey riding king there's plenty of chariots and battle bows. In the time between Zechariah and the time of Jesus, the land of Israel is conquered and occupied by both the Greeks and the Romans. You may have heard of this historical figure, kind of big deal, Alexander the Great. He was one of those conquerors that actually came through the area. And he was known for riding this giant horse. So the people of Israel, they resist these invaders. And several times, a hero would rise up from among them and deliver the people from their enemies. And they would, they would sometimes even called these people messiahs or anointed ones. But it, their saving was always by military might. And it never lasted, in lo- na- never lasted long. It was always by the chariot and the battle bow that Zechariah had talked about. They were always riding a war horse, but never a donkey. And that brings us to our passage today. Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey, being hailed as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So you see, when Jesus chose to rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was making a statement. He was saying, remember what the prophet Zechariah said about that coming king? Well, that's me. And Jesus isn't just tooting his own horn here. The people, the crowds are actually declaring him as king. They've seen his miracles. They've heard the prophecies. And they recognize him and welcome him with open arms. And you can see that kind of authority that Jesus has. Like his disciples go to borrow this donkey, and when they're asked why they're taking it, all they have to say is, the Lord has need of it. And that's good enough. Okay, go ahead, take it. You can imagine if you were to look out your window and you saw someone breaking into your car, and you go out there and, hey, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And you just go, yeah, okay, go ahead, take it. Right? It's strange, like, but that's the kind of authority that Jesus was, was, was commanding here. Jesus clearly has the support of the people, and they're willing to lend him their livestock with this little explanation as the Lord has need of it. Now, what I want to know is, why weren't these people like, hey, that donkey's kind of small. We got a bigger horse out back that might fit Jesus a little bit better. But the thing is, Jesus didn't want or he didn't need a bigger horse because that's not the kind of king that he is. 
Other kings and heroes had rode through Jerusalem's streets on their war horses and on their chariots, having overthrown the latest regime only to establish their own. Jesus is not that kind of king. He's the king that rides a donkey, not a war horse. He's a king that establishes his rule by healing and feeding, not through chariots and battle bows. It's the kind of king that doesn't charge a penny of tax, but rather pays off the debts of those who believe in him. He does not subjugate. He sets free. He's the kind of king that doesn't make his subjects go to war for him, but rather he lays down his own life to save them. He's the kind of king that doesn't wear a golden crown, but a crown of thorns. He is the king of the Jews, mocked and murdered on a cross. See, Jesus is this backwards king. He's the kind of king that Zechariah predicted. A real king would have driven the Romans out of Israel, set his people free from their oppressors by way of military campaign or some slick political maneuvering. But, the king, of, but king Jesus knows that the real oppressor is not the Greeks, it's not the Romans. The real oppressor is sin. And the only way to free his people from the oppression of sin is to take it upon himself. See, not only is this king prophesied to ride a donkey, but Zechariah also says this right at the end of that passage that we read. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about God's covenant with Abraham and how when they cut the covenant, it was God who would put his life on the line if the covenant was broken. It was his blood that would be spilled. So the prophet Zechariah is saying that this Messiah king is going to fulfill that blood covenant that God made with Abraham. Jesus is saying that he is that Messiah by riding into town on this little donkey. A few days later, Jesus actually verbally says this. He comes right out and says it. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, the Son of God, pours out his blood and his life on the cross and sets his people free from the waterless pit that is sin. So when Jesus rides into town on this donkey, he's making a huge statement. He's revealing himself as the Messiah. He's pointing back to that prophecy of Zechariah and even alluding to his upcoming death. It's a lot of symbolism in this one little act, this one little detail. And it gets even better. So in this triumphal entry, Jesus doesn't just reveal himself as Messiah, the king of Israel, but he actually reveals himself as God, the king of creation. Again, let's go back to that covenant with Abraham. If you remember, it was to be God's blood that atoned for the breaking of covenant. So when Jesus is saying that his blood is the blood of the covenant, and, that he's, and he's saying that he is the king prophesied in Zechariah, then he's really saying that he is God. Now that's a big statement to make. You don't just go around saying, hey, I'm God. You better be able to back that up with some evidence. So now we could go through all the miracles in the Gospels and try to prove that Jesus is, is, is God through those, or we could look at the I am statements of John. But let's just stay in our text for today. Let's look at how Jesus is revealing himself as God in our text in Luke 19. Now, I know we've been talking a lot about the donkey. It's not about the donkey, but it's a big part of the story. I keep coming back to it, so bear with me. But fun fact, do you know 
what Saul, so Saul, the first king of Israel, do you know what he was looking for when he was first anointed as king? Shout it out if you know. He was missing his donkeys. It's actually not a joke. <laughs> Saul, this first king of Israel, he was wandering around the con- countryside because his dad had lost his donkeys. He had to go find them. And he had looked everywhere. He had given up hope of finding them. And in this last-ditch effort to find the donkeys and being a bit of a superstitious kind of guy, he actually goes to Samuel, the, prophet, or the, the priest, and he asks God, or asks Samuel, if he can ask God where to find the donkeys. The first king of Israel couldn't find his own donkeys and has to ask God where to find them. Jesus, the final king of Israel and son of God, knows exactly where the donkey's going to be and even how the conversation's going to go down when it's found. So the moral of the story, obviously, is that God knows where the donkeys are, right? Okay, done? (laughs) Write it down, you (laughs) note-takers. Okay, so maybe that's a bit far-fetched, maybe a little simplistic, but these contrasting stories, they kind of highlight this foreknowledge that Jesus has in comparison to this bumbling human king that Saul is. His prediction of events is actually incredibly accurate. He knows where and when and how things are going to happen. Jesus is in control of the situation because he is God. Speaking of having control of the situation, how do you think Jesus managed to control his steed? Our passage tells us this isn't just any old donkey, but it's a colt. It's a young one that's never been written. So I don't know a whole lot about taming animals, but what I do know, it's quite the process to get like a young horse to actually let you even ride it. And I imagine it would be very similar with a donkey. Maybe some of you horse people can correct me later. (laughs) Except for Saturday. Even harder. Perfect. Yeah, I hear donkeys are really, they have a reputation for being very, very stubborn. So this isn't just something that happens overnight. You don't just tame a donkey in one go. So the fact that Jesus is able to get on this thing, hop right on and ride it, displays his mastery of creation. It's just like when he tames the waves and the wind in the storm. So now he tames this young donkey. And fortunately for most of us, this isn't the last stubborn ass that Jesus will tame. (laughs) Another detail that points to the divinity of Jesus is uh, the location that he arrives from. So Jesus arrives in this town. It's called Bethany. This is actually the place where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's recorded in the Gospel of John. It's not in Luke's Gospel that we're reading today. But it is the same place and the same time that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's got to be one of the biggest miraculous proofs of his divinity in the Bible. But that's a whole other sermon, and we can cover that some other time. But what's interesting about the town of Bethany is that it's on the Mount of Olives, or it's near the Mount of Olives, and it's right on the road to Jerusalem. And what's so interesting about the Mount of Olives? Again, to understand that, we've got to look at the prophet Zechariah and also the prophet Ezekiel. So Ezekiel came first, and when he predicted the exile, he described this vision of the glory of God leaving the city by way of the mountain east of the city, which is the Mount of Olives. And then when Zechariah comes along, he prophesies that the day of the Lord, and he describes the the Lord returning and standing on the Mount of Olives. And it goes like this. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move north and the other half south. 
and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. Now this particular passage seems to be more talking about the final coming of Christ, but when you read, read this passage from Zechariah and you read the passage from Ezekiel, you kind of seem to see that the, they indicate that this route, that this, this road from the Mount of Olives is this path that the Lord takes to and from Jerusalem. It was the road that people would have expected the Lord to come down if he were to come. So when I was a kid, I used to think about the second coming and be scared of it, as most kids kind of are. And I always kind of imagined Jesus coming down from Mount Shem. Now, if you've ever seen it, like... In, uh, at sunrise or something. It's, it's really cool. It's quite majestic. There's like beams of light kind of pour over the shoulders of the mountains. And you're like, if, if God was going to come back in some divine cataclysmic event, like that's, that would be the spot. And I think the Mount of Olives kind of had that reputation too. If God was going to show up, that was the mountain that he was going to come down from. One final point uh, that speaks to the divinity of Jesus is his statement right at the end of our passage. So while the people are proclaiming him as king, the Pharisees are telling him to tell them to shut up. And Jesus replies to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now when Jesus says that, that the stones will cry out if the people are silenced, he's actually saying that he is God. He's saying that if the people don't proclaim who he is, the very creation will and it does. Jesus is proven right. Five days later, the Pharisees managed to shut the crowds up. They turned the crowds against Jesus. They turned the shouts of Hosanna into shouts of crucify him. And when Jesus breathes his last and all fall silent, there's this great earthquake. Rocks split, the graves are opened, and many dead are raised. The rocks literally cry out and give up their dead. The earth cries out when no one else will. It's as the psalmist wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The claim that creation could cry out on your behalf, and the fact that it actually did, is this claim and this proof to be God. When Jesus calmed the storm, his disciples asked, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? And we may very well ask today, of our passage, who is this that the very stones would cry out in worship? He's the son of the living God who made the heavens and the earth. The heavens declare it. The people of Jerusalem declared it that day on Palm Sunday. And the rocks declared it again on Good Friday. Do you declare it? Is Jesus your king? Now, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, he rode in revealed as the Messiah. He rode in revealed as the Son of God. He rode in to be crowned and executed as King of the Jews. And in doing so, he became the King of our hearts. 
Now, this king doesn't sit astride a war horse looking down on us. He actually rides in on a donkey at eye level. He doesn't come gallivanting in to rule over you like a tyrant. Instead, he comes in slowly and deliberately, giving his life for yours. Instead of exacting taxes, he actually pays the debt of our sins on the cross. Instead of being a human ruler with all their blunders and faults, and we have enough of those in our current political situation already, he's the king of creation. He's God himself. There's no blunders. There's no scandals. There's no screw-ups. So you know when politicians are trying to get elected, they make a lot of promises. They, say, they promise things like free money and less taxes and that sort of thing. But very few of those promises actually end up coming true. And if they do, there's always a but. There's always a catch. But the promises of our king always come true. The rocks will cry out. And they cried out. Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey. So what kind of king do you want? A so-called real king? A worldly ruler that promises you money and security in exchange for your vote? Or the king Jesus? who gave his life to pay your debt before you even had a vote. If and when we accept him, what will our posture be toward this king? Will we be like the crowds, getting caught up in the excitement, crying, Hosanna on Sunday, and crucify him on Saturday or on Friday? How does your Sunday morning compare with your Friday night? It's easy to see Jesus as king when everyone around us is, is calling and putting up our hands and waving palm branches and having a good time. But it's a lot harder to see him as king when the world has him on trial and it's suddenly very unpopular to be his follower. How easy it is for us to just go along with the crowd, to say that he's our Lord one day and then reject him the next. Do we genuinely receive Jesus as king? Or is this just something that we say because everyone else around us is saying it? Or are we like the disciples? Do we take a posture of faith? Jesus tells them that there's this donkey in the next town and that its owners will let them borrow it. And so they hike over there and they actually start untying the thing. Do you trust the promises of God? Like, go steal a donkey, trust the promises of God? Because Jesus actually calls us to a very backwards way of living. He talks about things like praying for our enemies, uh, giving up our lives. He asks a rich man to sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor. And most of his disciples ended up being killed for their faith. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he said to them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's, that's a great, uh, instills a lot of confidence, doesn't it? As Jesus approaches Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he is riding into the wolves' den. The religious leaders are furious about him and they're plotting to kill him, and it's no secret. And the Romans aren't going to be too pleased about some random dude claiming to be king. And yet the disciples go with him. And that week their faith will be put to the test, and it will fail. But they go with him now, knowing it's dangerous, knowing it's unwise and going along with the absurdity of this whole donkey thing. As we start getting near the end here, I want to invite the worship team back up. And I want to ask, 
Are you being called to follow Jesus in a similar way? A way that by all worldly appearances doesn't make sense? Are you willing to trust that he has a plan, just like he did all those years ago? Is Jesus the king of your heart? Would you follow him, proclaim his kingship, even in the city of his enemies? Maybe some of you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior many years ago. Maybe that just happened just recently. Or maybe you haven't taken that step yet. But it's not a decision to be made lightly. Jesus tells those who would follow him to count the cost. You know, right after Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he went straight to the temple and drove those that were there selling things. And that's what, kind of what it's like when Jesus enters your heart. He's going to start pushing out the stuff that doesn't belong there. Be ready for it. Count the cost. When we greet him with hosannas and praise hymns and calling him Lord on Sunday morning, we also need to be prepared for him to enter the temple of our hearts and start cleaning house. We can't just say these words and not let our hearts be changed. You know the word hosanna literally means save, like oh save. It's this exclamation of adoration and it's a cry for salvation all at once. So when we greet Jesus with the word Hosanna, when we proclaim him as our Savior and as our Lord, as they did on that first Palm Sunday, we're really saying three things. We're proclaiming him as the Messiah, the promised King of Israel, the saving one. Hosanna, oh save. And if we're, if we're, and if we're calling him to be the promise, or calling him the promised King of Israel, then we must also call him God, ruler of creation. And if he's truly the saving King, the almighty God, and who are we to deny him from being the ruler of our hearts? Because ultimately, that's what he came to do that day. The son of the most high God, riding a little donkey, to be crowned king of the Jews and die in our place and win the battle for our hearts. So if you're here today and you want to receive Jesus for the first time, if you're feeling that pull on your heart, we have people up near the front who are ready and willing to listen to you and to pray with you through that. If you already are a disciple of Jesus and you're feeling called to step out in faith in some way, I challenge you to explore that call. See if that donkey really is in the next town. We would love to pray with you about that as well. Maybe you have some doubts about your faith. Maybe everything seems good on Sunday, but the reality of the world makes things a lot less clear during the week. And by Friday, you're just ready to give up on him. I hope that your faith is strengthened this morning in the presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, I encourage you to take advantage of our prayer team or of anyone here. And to all of us, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our King, especially this week as we prepare to reflect on his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that he comes humbly, that he is at our level, he comes to, to look us right in the eye. So thankful for your sacrifice, for giving your life for us, Lord. As we look forward to Easter, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive you, to welcome you, and to greet you as our King. Soften our hearts, Lord. Let us give up the things that you want to push out of our hearts, drive out. Lord, we lift up before you Lake Iraq. We lift up before you Chris and Sarah. And as they launch on Saturday, 
We just, we pray for that grace, that you would fill them with your grace and that they would be able to pour that grace out on everyone else in that community. Lord, we want to pray for our worldly rulers, for our prime ministers and presidents. We pray that your wisdom would break into their hearts, that you would leave them open to your word and that you would give them uh, the wisdom to, to lead us correctly and justly. Lord, we pray that you would go with us in the week ahead, in this holy week, as we prepare for Easter. In your name we pray. Amen.